sometimes folks who hold the keys to organizations or have institutional power and are gatekeepers don't believe that they can make some of the mistakes that would push someone out or would exclude somebody. Hey everyone, and welcome to Seen at Work, the podcast. It's the podcast where we highlight diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals and the work they're doing to help their fellow employees feel seen at work. I'm Natalia Eileen, and I help businesses build more inclusive, more diverse workplaces. Today, I'm excited to bring to you a conversation I had with a fellow diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, Antonio Brown. Originally from Harlem, New York, and a current San Francisco resident, Antonio Brown is a DEI practitioner specializing in organizing within educational and nonprofit institutions. As a firm believer in the power of collective mobilization, he now assists organizations as they grapple with how to identify sustainable practices that will create communities of change. During our conversation, Antonio and I discussed the importance of inclusion. We talked about the role everyone plays in building a more inclusive, more equitable workplace. And we talked about how even well-intentioned people can be complicit in making a space less inclusive. Listen as we discuss the ways that you can make your workplace more inclusive and how you can do your part no matter what position you hold within the organization. Enjoy. All right, we have here Antonio Brown. Very excited to have him on the podcast. Um, Antonio, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I feel lucky to be here and be able to talk with you today. Oh, thank you. We're, we're lucky to have you. So we'd love to jump right in. I know you have a few initiatives that you wanted to share with us, but before we talk about that, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of your background and your experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, for sure. Um, so again, my name is Antonio Brown. Um, so I initially um, entered the DEI space as a youth practitioner. I had been a mentor, academic advisor, college advisor, career advisor, you know, um, in various forms um, until I stepped into my organization, my previous employer, Summer Search, uh, where they brought me in to lead a male of color initiative where they were really focusing in on trying to recruit and retain Black Latino boys in their program. Um, and unknowingly, I stepped into the DEI space um, just around the time of my brother's keeper, of course. And so um, a lot of attention was being focused there. And this organization was really excited. They had just gotten a grant from AT&T. You know, the organization was fully behind it. Um, and my journey with them really started off with how do we shift um, our frame of critique to understanding the actual issue? and not just what issue is showing up in the data, right? So what is the element of storytelling yeah. um, in there? And, and it ended up turning from, now how do we focus on recruiting Black Latino boys to, now how do we retain them in the program? How do we you know, retain those same staff members within our organization? And really identifying ways that the organization itself needed to move to be a more welcoming space. Um, but not just those people, but people who are already there as well. Yeah, interesting. So you jumped in maybe without a, a formal uh, kind of experience in the role, but really thrown in to support the Black and Latino boys that were coming through recruitment-wise. And then you ended up finding yourself thinking about how to retain these students and then also the people of color. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there was a, um, that's funny. I never forget it. Um, during one of my interviews, actually, um, I was talking to them. They had the symposium around uh, their anniversary and identifying this new initiative that they were really excited about. Um, and they kind of told me during the interview about this being sort of two different positions, right? The first one, of course, being the overt you know, how do we recruit these young men into the program who we want to serve and we're in these communities for a reason? Mm -hmm. And also, how do you change the culture of the organization in a way to meet that new vision that they hadn't yet articulated? Huh. And so the work was really on twofold. It was this over, you know, what are the programmatic changes we need to make? What are the ways that we're researching and connecting with these folks? Mm -hmm. um, and also, like, how do you change an organization that you know, in the nonprofit youth development space, you know, a white founded organization, white led organization, for mm -hmm. the most part, for most of its history, what practices, what, you know, culture shifts do you need to make um, to make it one in which everyone felt like they had a stake in the community as a large, mm -hmm. um, which took a lot of organizing and took a lot of learning for me as well <laughs> to understand kind of the nature of the issue and how it was evolving I was watching it unfold in, in real time yeah well because it sounds like your your background was largely on the youth coordinating side right so um maybe the the recruitment part of things or the diversity um driving the diversity within the context of this student pool was maybe more aligned with what you were used to but then you also had to think about the retention piece within the organization yeah there was a bit of um I had some experience with both. I was, um, I'm someone who's really stubborn. And I think within organizations, I found that, you know, I always wanted us to create a new program or to push the agenda forward in terms of, you know, how do we really meet these students' needs? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd always, like even at, you know, in college or previous employers, like, oh, let's start this new mentoring program that was peer based where, you know, they could have real conversation about what mattered to them or, mm -hmm. you know, how do we push uh, the envelope in terms of what we're discussing and talking about race with, mm -hmm. you know, first-gen students who are typically Black, Latino going to college. How are we talking about that by the time they get there? So I had experience with that, mm -hmm. but had never been given more or less the keys to an organization to say, like, hey, we want you to make this change for us. Yeah. Which I think when you're kind of sitting there as a gatekeeper in an institution, it creates a different type of dynamic where then it's like, how do you make sure that it's actually representative of what those communities want and not just, you know, what's your own vision of it is, you know, you have yeah. to kind of bring them with you in a sense. Yeah. Well, it sounds like then we should jump into both sides of this. Um, how did you approach first really addressing the need to bring in more black and Latino boys. What was your, your approach to that? And then I wanna hear more about what you did internally too. Hope you don't mind me popping in here to let you know that we are moving into a new updated schedule. We'll be posting a podcast every other Thursday for you. So make sure you're subscribed to the C Network podcast so you can get a new episode every other Thursday. Okay back to the podcast with Antonio. Yeah, so I had my own thoughts coming into it. You know, um, Summer Search's model at the time was, 
you know, one-on-one -on -one mentoring, mostly over the phone. Um, a lot of their staff at that time was largely white, a lot of white women, right? And you're working primarily students of color. So you're already working with degrees of difference. Um, and their mentoring model was really focused around like, how do we really focus on emotional well-being? And um, from the interviews, you're talking about your feelings and you know, a lot of mm -hmm. traumas come up for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have staff that's adequately prepared to hold those conversations for students of color, then the container for that can really, you know, dissuade students from joining, mm -hmm. you know, or students can feel like they can't fully be their whole selves um, with their mentors or with who's interviewing them. And so we had to create um, kind of new ways of talking about things. And what was interesting was that when I came in, they already had some things, you know, that they were focused on. They wanted to target parents, they wanted to target alumni, and they wanted to target um, their model outside of working with just schools and work with, you know, community-based organizations. Mm -hmm. All great ideas, um, but also not fully getting there in terms of, you know, what does this look like in terms of how does this manifest on the ground? Mm -hmm. um, and how does it look like in Seattle versus New York versus Boston? Now, this is a national organization that is meeting, you know, very different communities, right? If you're mm -hmm talking about Seattle, that's a very different demographic mm -hmm. than the students that were in Boston or the students in the Bay Area. And so mm -hmm. getting to the nuances is really important and talking directly to those communities um, was what I use as my approach before I came with my own kind of answers. And so the initial, I would say three months was just me trying to gather information on distributing surveys, I'm giving interviews, I'm talking to students who were in the program, students who got out of the program, mm -hmm. former partners, all trying to get a sense of what was their experience, you know, and at what point, you know, did they make the, the, the affirmative decision to stay with some research or the decision to move away from it? Mm -hmm. And I kind of moved with that sense of like, how do I step back from my own vision of this work and actually move forward with what they're telling me mm -hmm. and make that story, make their story story, the collective story of what the organization is and how we're traversing and, you know, transforming through this journey. Yeah. Thanks for thinking, for talking through that. It sounds like there was a lot of data collection to start and understanding the context to maybe address what was really happening. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, maybe the other side of it was maybe a little more complicated. I don't know. I'm curious to hear what did you do to try to make the organization more inclusive? Yeah, so that part was harder, right? Like that part, um, I think in some research's journey, um, they had, you know, had this huge diversity initiative, which, you know, brought on a lot more staff of color, which was a good thing. But then also like managerially, you know, most of the managers were still white, um, which created a power differential, right? And so how do you have the staff who is ready to go, really excited about creating this change? How do you enable them and mobilize them um, in a way that leverages that collective mm -hmm. over necessarily where the institution is right now? Because mm -hmm. one of the issues that you saw was that 
you know, staff of color, particularly black staff, particularly like black women staff on the ground, knew what the needs were. Mm-hmm. They had been, you know, organizing locally, um, but I was coming in on the national level. And so one of the things I tried to do really early on was, you know, how do I put this team in Seattle in conversation with the team in New York and in the conversation with the team in Boston, mm-hmm. that we're all having a shared understanding of what our, our shared issues are, what the different issues are, mm-hmm. and how to actually you know, build community and build a base that could hold the work forward. I think one of the things I'm really sensitive to is um, being a solitary, you know, figurehead or being a token in that way. Mm-hmm. And so it was important that it was a collective of people and not just a single person stepping forward to take control who could then be isolated or then, mm-hmm. you know, be moved to the outskirts of the organization because those that ends up being an unsustainable practice, right? And mm-hmm. really collectives are what push, and push uh, institutions forward. And so we utilize those collective uh, abilities. And so that could look like, you know, how are we changing information on who we're hiring, mm-hmm. right? Like in our hiring garage, what questions are we asking? Mm-hmm. Are we being transparent with our pay scales? Mm-hmm. Um, what do affinity groups look like on the ground? Do we have them? Do we need to build them? Mm-hmm. Um, but those needs were a variety, there were a variety of different needs across those different sites. And so mm-hmm. a lot of it came down to what is our collective strategy that we ended up building together, which was this 19 page document of things that needed to happen. And also like sort of not being realistic, but understanding where the organization is now versus where we wanted them to be. You know that it's a part of a journey and during that journey, not everyone's gonna be there because um, it's going to be a several years process. And so um, really what was the transformative, um, I think, catalyst for us was building that group, that body of people that was able to drive the work forward in a way that was nuanced and uh, used that collective wisdom that we had around it. So there were individual practices, of course, um, around a decision-making framework that really built around you know, how do we, as an organization, make strategic decisions mm-hmm. that are based in the real life experiences and the feedback and the input from the people directly impacted by them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no longer are you making decisions on behalf of students without consulting students in that decision, mm-hmm. right? And so we really came forward with this power analysis that was trying to undermine or not undermine necessarily, but trying to move forward the work in a way that would live beyond the individual members of the group. Yeah. I feel like you've named a few things that I want to dig into, if that's all right, because you name the approach to bringing these people together, bringing together people who really want to advocate for this. Um, Was there a group that you organized to help inform some of the initiatives that you listed in that 19 page document? Yeah, there was a um, EDI core team of folks. Um, you know, the name had turned over depending on what we were addressing, but, um, you know, we had worked with, you know, several folks, you know, some consultants. Um, I think our biggest ones were Rachel Ibrahim and Heidi Lopez, who really helped us like push our work forward in a major way. Um, mm. 
from workshops that they were leading with us and coaching um, with us as a core group. And then, you know, having those conversations, those foundational trainings with the entirety of staff. Mm-hmm. And so on a baseline, we were talking about, um, you know, how white supremacy may impact us in the workplace or impact our students. We were doing that with the shared analysis across the entire organization for the first time. That allowed us to move past some of the conflicts that come up of using different definitions or having a different idea of what words mean and actually being able to say like, this is what we're talking about here. And now that we have the same terms to use, we can easily identify the issues mm-hmm. and start proposing solutions um, that we think might be sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that, it sounds like that probably also helped some of the dynamics you were seeing with managers and these new early entrants to the to the nonprofit, right? These people who were part of the, the push for more diversity, but then were reporting to mostly white managers. Was there anything else you did to support that, to support that dynamic and those managers? Yeah, so I had, um, <laughs> my experience at this organization um, was really varied. I started off on the national program team and then I moved under the CEO and then I moved to the talent team. And so um, it looked different in every role. Um, you know, I think towards the end of my tenure, we started doing a lot of manager trainings um, that was specifically focused on, you know, how do you create an inclusive management model mm-hmm. um, where there may be degrees of difference. And at the same time, you know, how do you make space for those staff? And on the talent time, we had to ask real questions like, are we promoting black staff or Latino staff to the same degree that we other to other staff? Mm-hmm. Are they leaving in higher degrees? What are our exit interviews saying? Um, and so really trying to hone in on um, where nationally those issues were coming up mm-hmm. and how locally they may look a little different, right? Um, where locally there may be a more specific issue with managers at one site versus another site maybe like there's more of an issue with you know pay or you know the hiring part of the scale mm-hmm. so there was a lot of places where um the questioning and the constant creating a, a community of authentic feedback really mattered and really drove our direction mm-hmm. um yeah i think sometimes we can be really focused on no, let's just get to this outcome, but if the process doesn't actually elicit the, the feedback and the buy-in that you want, ultimately that's, that outcome's not gonna matter in a couple of years when your staff changes over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're starting to dig into some of the challenges that might've been associated with your efforts, but do you have a few challenges that you ran into when you were trying to institute these initiatives or when you were um, really learning more and uncovering the many ways that you needed to tackle this? Uh, yeah, there, <laughs> there were a lot of challenges. Um, the very first one I remember that I encountered was, you know, staff of color looking at me and saying, is this real? You know, like, is this something that's really happening? Are we, are we really addressing this? Um, because I think they had, some staff had been in this place of silence dialogue where okay, like we, we're not sure, you know, where the organization really stands on these things. And, you know, we may have gotten negative feedback around, you know, our own speaking up about certain things. And so like, is what you're saying what's actually happening? You know, mm-hmm. and can we trust you as a partner in this work? 
um, to continue moving this forward. And so one of the things was like convincing folks that no, like we're actually, you know, addressing this issue, right? And so I remember uh, specifically, you know, someone had posed a really real question um, when I first started around, you know, I, I understand why this initiative is focused on, you know, black men and young Latino men um, in this program, but why isn't there any focus given to black women or Latino women in this program, you know? And it was a very fair question. And it's something I had grappled with even during the hiring process, hiring process for the position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the answer I gave them was that, you know, within the system of this organization specifically, you know, black and Latino boys aren't even making it through the program at all. You know, like they're not making it through the initial intake process. Well, let me, I want to change the verb there. It's not that they're not making it through. It's not a passive um, thing on their part. The organization was uh, pushing them out um, unintentionally with their practices, mm -hmm. you know? And so it wasn't that, you know, the women in our community weren't suffering or weren't struggling under patriarchy or white supremacy, but really that within our institution, they were finding success um, despite those things and that our black and Latino boys weren't. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that, you know, me being really honest with them in that conversation allowed that trust to start building of saying, these are real issues. And also, you know, what is right in front of us, you know, that we can start tackling mm -hmm. to get to these larger questions that we need to ask as well. Mm -hmm. That's really useful. You know, even just framing it for ourselves, right? You know, how we're thinking through our work and how we're able to communicate that with others. Um, it's, it's helpful to hear how you were thinking about that. I wonder, and that sounds like a, a challenge that was very specific to the the work you were doing in recruiting, you, the yeah. students that you set forth to recruit. I would love to hear what challenges existed on the inclusive culture building side. Yeah, on the on the culture building side, I think you know when you're in a nonprofit education space, you're typically dealing with well-intentioned people, right? Um, and I think sometimes that can be its own type of difficult, um, because there's not a clear line in the sand. Right. And I think what I saw was either people thinking that, you know, they were inclusive just by them believing that they were a good person, right. Or not really understanding the ways in which they wielded their power, whether that I'm, I'm speaking specifically as institutional power um, and how that can show up along lines of, of privilege, right? And so you may say like someone is showing up um, to, you know, a manager meeting with their uh, person that they're managing and they understand conflict in a completely different way. And so when their person that they're managing addresses like, hey, like I really need you to show up for me you know, in this way, or, you know, I want to be able to be eligible for this opportunity and I'm being kind of walled out of it. I want to talk about that with you. Sometimes the way that, you know, folks were bringing up conflict as just, you know, I, I want to advance or I want to meet a need that's not being met. Some of those things were being met with resistance just by sheer of it being a conflict in itself, mm -hmm. um, which became a thing that we needed to mobilize around and really address, like, how do you create transparency for everyone so that these one-on-one -on -one conversations don't 
isolate people along the fringes, right? And so, you know, what we would see in some of our kind of formal and informal data gathering would be that, you know, while they wouldn't say someone's a bad manager necessarily, or someone like doesn't have, you know, the interest at heart, like they didn't have access to certain opportunities because of the way that they showed up, mm -hmm. right? And the mm -hmm. way that they showed up was really privily and really loosely kind of perceived by their manager as maybe being detrimental or maybe not being as professional enough or, you know, not their vision of what the, that person in that next position would look like, you mm -hmm. know? And so, you know, creating a lot of transparency around, all right, so what is the actual, what are the competencies needed for these positions? You know, what are the actual roles or definitive practices that we need, you know, leaders to show up with in these spaces? Mm -hmm. How do you use that as a way to take away some of that opaqueness? Because mm -hmm. what you would find is that there are issues that you just don't know about because maybe you and I are experiencing it in our individual one-on-ones, but because those are private things, not collective conversations, we may not have that idea at all that someone else is dealing with the same thing. But mm -hmm. when you start having those conversations and creating spaces for affinity or creating spaces for those conversations that happen, you start to unearth some of those issues that would have never seemed to light had they been you know, relegated to a one-on-one. -on -one. Right. But it allowed us as people with institutional power or maybe influence in my position at least, um, start to be able to address in a lot of different ways. So, you know, sometimes it took a little bit for folks to kind of understand their role and their complicity in being a barrier to other folks, completely unintentionally sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't change the actual fact that, you know, that was the impact of their decisions or the impact of their non-decisions in some cases mm -hmm. um, around helping people advance and creating that inclusive culture for folks. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that you're describing uh, the importance of inclusion or the importance of thinking about inclusion as part of the way you're structuring an organization or part of the way you're structuring communication around the the way the organization is organized. Um, it's just interesting because not everyone recognizes that when we say inclusive leadership, there's also some very basic elements of communication and organizational effectiveness that translate into all of the ways that people feel or don't feel included, right? Yes. Yes, I think sometimes in the DEI space, particularly for folks who are not, who are trying to learn um, in that space or to become, maybe they're trying to help push their organization in that direction. I think sometimes folks who hold the keys to organizations or have institutional power and are gatekeepers don't believe that they can make some of the mistakes that would push someone out or would exclude somebody. Um, and that could be a simple, you know, who's pictured on the website. That could be, you know, how are we talking about decisions? What language are we using when we're talking about our communities? Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about partnering with youth, you know, what does that look materially, mm -hmm. right? Like are youth in decision-making seats, right? Like not just, hey, like we think this is a great decision for you, youth, like go do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you actually saying, you know, if 
you know, we maybe struggle with diversity on a leadership level, but we have a diverse staff, we have diverse community members all around us, mm-hmm. right? How do we elevate them to decision-making seats? And how do we create, you know, lines of succession that would allow us or allow those people to step into leadership roles? Right. Um, and maybe that means structural change from saying like, hey, we're going to expand our board or we're going to expand our leadership team mm-hmm. um, or we're going to create, you know, material forms of accountability. Mm-hmm. But it just can't rest with, you know, inclusive behavior solely, you know, mm-hmm. because one individual doesn't change an organization. It takes like the whole community to start mobilizing in a lot of different ways. Everyone has an impact and a role for sure, but you know, if the way I thought about it, if I left the organization, I wanted the the movement to continue um, unlearning some of the practices and learning and stepping into liberated practices to continue whether I'm there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the true sustainable change and not just, you know, yeah, we have someone that looks uh, after all our communications and checks these boxes for us. You know, at the end of the day, those are just going to be interchangeable. Yeah, it sounds like systematizing it and making sure everyone realizes that it's part of their role to keep it moving forward, which is hard. It's hard to help people, uh, to your point, especially when you're saying there's more that you could be doing. Some people are feeling like, oh, I'm doing quite a bit, aren't I? And so it, it makes sense that also part of our jobs in this role is to help people see the ways that they could be doing better we can all be doing better always, right? To make our workplaces more inclusive. So I think that's- Oh, oh yeah. Cause yeah. they might say like, hey, let's just hire a DEI manager. We'll, we'll, this thing, this whole thing will be over with, you know? <laughs> and <I> know. <laughs> that's not how it works, <laughs> you know, at all. Right. And um, now as I talk with organizations, one of my biggest things is like, what are your individual goals around this? You know, like, Maybe you sit in the finance department, maybe you sit on the talent team, or maybe you sit in program, right? Like everyone, you know, has a role in this. And, you know, when people abstain from, I guess, that responsibility of like checking to see like, you know, I have institutional power, I'm setting strategic vision for this organization. You know, maybe I should sit and think about ways that I'm being inclusive with this the future of the organization, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to set goals for, you know, our fundraising model, you know, how do I want to make sure that, you know, the funders that we have, you know, are representing the needs of our community or are, you know, really focused on representing us just as much as anyone else would. Like there has to be this sort of grappling with it across all lines of mm-hmm. the work and all, you know, staff members and really are all hands on deck situation rather than just, you know, these are the 10 practices that we have that are going to lead us to be inclusive. It's, it's much deeper than that if you want to change organization over time. Certainly, definitely. Well, I, did you have any other challenges that you wanted to highlight before we kind of start talking about any advice you have for people trying to do the same thing? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges I faced was was also a challenge that the, I spent, you know, I did leadership coaching uh, in this role as well and, you know, working with different staff members. And one of the biggest challenges was how do you take the vision or, you know, the beliefs and principles of, you know, uh, 
liberation and racial equity, you know, or DEI and put them into practice, you know? And for me, that really came from stepping away from, you know, in order not stepping away from organization, but stepping away from purely utilizing my institutional power as an individual and using that power that I had in my position to elevate other people who could also do, do the work um, and who could do it on a local level, who could do it on a national level alongside of me um, to decentralize um, that work. And the decentralization of it is what allows it and gives the work the power to move forward. Um, and that can be hard sometimes because I think, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, you're branding your work and, you know, this is what I do. It moves from like an ego center to a, a we type of um, conversation and uh, initiative. And so I think that's something that can be sort of challenging for folks to move on. Like, how do you represent the work that, you know, you've done as an individual or that, you know, one person has contributed to it and it takes time to practice, you know, how do you trust others to also move along with you in this work and, you know, bring folks in to mobilize horizontally. In many ways, uh, you're describing that from two different angles, right? Because in many ways, that's something that people struggle with in this role on an internal basis. Like you said, letting go and allowing others to do this work with you so you're not alone. But sometimes it's also externally placed on you where everything goes to you. Oh, you have any questions? Ask Antonio. Or you need something related <laughs> to DEI? Oh, Antonio's our guy. And that also seems to be a common thing that happens when we're leading DEI within an organization, is it not? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I think that's that's the trick. You know, I think that's the the place where you know a lot of staff can get burnt out. I think particularly when you think of the last year, you know, with yeah, you know, the, yeah, twenty twenty with the reignition of you know Black Lives Matter movement and how. A lot of organizations are starting DEI positions now and um, in this important work and also it's emotionally taxing for, for some people, right? And so you wanna make sure that you're resourcing folks with not just the dollars or you know the authority to make certain decisions, right? But that there's a community of practice there that can allow the work and allow that person to, to move with others. Um, and to really take it personal the way that we're each responsible for how we show up in the work, right? Whether that's, you know, I know there's a lot of education lists that go that have gone around. Um, my favorite book has been Emergent Strategy by Emerge, uh, Adrian Marie Brown. Um, but taking that learning and putting it into practice is where folks can kind of get tripped up in a also like having white affinity spaces for, you know, white staff to talk about, you know, their race and to identify how they want to, you know, show up or maybe manage differently or, you know, create an inclusive culture. I think that's where, you know, some of the work gets really difficult, right? Because it's what's happening when the DEI person is not around that really kind of defines where your organization is gonna go and if it's gonna go in a direction that is truly inclusive or equitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for elaborating a little bit more on those challenges. I think they're really useful to hear your thoughts on. I also would love to hear any advice you might have for people who are in 
these DEI roles, especially maybe some of us who are newly appointed or finding ourselves in a new limelight. As you mentioned, there's a lot of attention now for a lot of us on this work for good reason. And also, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot to manage there. So do you have any advice? Yeah, I think my, I think my first piece of advice would be to be able to, to know where your organization is and to know where you are at the same time. Um, there can be a lot of risk involved with, you know, moving in this work, right? Some, depending on the organization, like using some language, I know like I speak about white supremacy pretty openly um, and clearly, but at other organizations, it can be really limiting and really um, risky for, for the language that folks use. I wouldn't say um, to, to tone police yourself or to you know run away from that kind of language, but being able to really talk about it in a way that people know exactly what you're talking about, you know, because I remember I was talking to one of our you know, board members and he, <laughs> it was so funny talking about it with him because we were talking about white supremacy in the DEI and uh, at the organization. He's like, are there really people with like, like racist at Summer Search, you know? And now I kind of had this shift the conversation of like, well, we need to define what we're talking about here. You know, we're not talking about people running around with hoods on, you know, as far as I know, right? <laughs> but what we're talking about, you know, the ways that people may intentionally or unintentionally wield power that excludes others from being able to move up an organization or, you know, to truly create an organization that represents the communities that we work with mm -hmm. um, in authentic ways. And so there's a lot of conversation in DEI that's overt and there's a lot of things that are kind of quiet, like people really questioning, you know, can I speak up here? Can I talk about this thing? And in my experience, it's always more useful to say the thing and but also know where you have relationships and where you can leverage those things. And so sometimes maybe I'm not the best messenger for, you know, a particular part of the conversation, but who am I working with? to also, who's also delivering that message. You know, it can't just all be from me all the time because then you get labeled the problem person or the troublemaker. So, you know, knowing who your partners and your allies are in the work um, and using that to your benefit. That's really useful. And I think it highlights the need to um, recognize where people are, where your organization is. I know you started some of your work by listening and gaining a better understanding of where people were starting. And I always like to talk about, there's this ideal in this space that we are all having these conversations very openly and you know, getting into the nitty gritty of r racial inequity or of white supremacy and having, you know, you know what I mean? These amazing conversations and really seeing change. Sometimes though, some organizations aren't quite ready for all of that just yet. And you keep it in mind, but you meet people where they are and kind of inch them in that direction. I don't know yeah. if you would agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I always try to frame it as like, you know, set the expectations high, but know that you might have to fill in the gaps some places, you know, um, I always 
think that challenging people on their front end is, I think, more effective than moving the goalposts, you know? Um, I think sometimes out of that fear of, you know, causing discomfort or disengaging people, you know, you might not say the thing, but then you might <laughs> start approaching a conversation. And when you're talking about, and I think an example of this, because I think I'm kind of being a little vague uh, for some reason, but, you know, when we're talking about creating an inclusive culture or you're talking about, you know, trying to mitigate white supremacy and how it impacts the organization, sometimes if you're talking in a way that is not clear about what the, the, the way that it's manifesting on the ground, Mm-hmm. It can feel like you're moving the goalposts for people who are not as deeply engaged or familiar with the work. And so the more clearly you can articulate that vision of the future of where you imagine yourself and the organization being, right, in a really critical lens, mm-hmm. the easier it is for folks to walk along with you there. You know, you can say like, hey, we're at this part of the process now. You know, maybe now we're talking about, you know, how do we, you know, create inclusive hiring practices or you know, how do we, you know, create more representational leadership? Mm-hmm. But next, we're going to talk about, you know, how do we manage differently with that in mind? Or how do we um, allocate resources differently, knowing that these things are real for us? And so mm-hmm. kind of painting that vision and having that be the backbone of your argument um, typically gives folks something to really grab onto tangibly to understand mm-hmm. how to move forward. That's a really, really great point. Thank you for, for emphasizing that. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share? Because I think we're near the end of our time together. But if you have any last parting words for our colleagues listening in. Um, I think for me, you know, my, my approach, one of my mentors <laughs> um, said he's in it to work himself out of a job. And that's kind of how I see myself of like, yeah. You know, if, if I'm still doing this work, in like 50 years, which, you know, a lot of us will end up like me because this work just exists. The goal is to ultimately, to not be in this position that our kids, that our grandkids don't have to fight through the same systems that, you know, we're in now. And so I think that's something I kind of hold true and, you know, invite everyone to, you know, connect with me if they would like to discuss or, you know, I can share some resources that I have. I'm always open to collaborating with folks. Um, And to just take rest, you know, as you go about it, I'm a huge believer in, you know, pacing yourself and the importance of rest and, you know, any kind of activism or, you know, open work. Yeah, especially in this emotionally taxing work. Well, thank you so much, Antonio. It was great chatting with you. Well, I appreciate you. Again, thank you for having me on. Um, Definitely great talk with you and hopefully we'll connect again soon. For sure. All right.